with the right people and the right purpose, you don't have to worry about the profits. They will come. And I think that that's what you're saying is that with engaged, committed people doing intentional work with the right purpose in mind, which are your standards and the vision and direction that you have, then you're not worried about, well, maybe we should supersize this today so we can make some more fries. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicol. When I sat down for this episode of Blunt Dissection, I thought it would be like any normal interview, but very quickly found myself in the Blunt Section hot seat, being interviewed by the returning and completely mischievous Dr. Peter Weinstein. Peter texted the mic to ask me some of veterinary medicine's most burning questions, plus a few of his own complete dad questions, and I've got to say I'm a little bit worried that he's trying to take over as the host of the show. Despite me feeling a bit uncomfortable, we had a fantastic discussion on a range of subjects, from avoiding mentoring meltdowns, to the importance of culture, to reimagining the whole veterinary model based around new technology. There's a lot to cover in this one, so we'll jump right on in after this message from our show sponsor. If you are struggling with managing time, feeling like an imposter, or you're burned out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you're not broken and you're not a bad fit for the profession. You're simply missing some super important skills no one teaches at university. Skills you will learn as part of the Verex community. Thrive is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more, visit Vetex International Today. Now, before we get into the interview, a quick reminder if you don't know him, just how much Peter Weinstein has accomplished in his varied and successful career. He's a graduate of Cornell University where he got his DVM and he worked in general practice for three years before taking what he described as his entrepreneurial seizure very seriously and opening his own practice. He learned the hard way. What it takes is a lot more than just love of animals to run a successful vet business. So whilst managing and practicing full time, he completed his MBA, having a huge huge impact on the success of his practice. Eight decades of practice later, he segued into the land of veterinary politics and business consulting, serving as president and exec director of the Southern California Veterinary Medical Association. He also co-wrote the book, The E-Myth Veterinarian with Michael Gerber. A book, I have to say, I have massive author envy over. He's also not been in practice for eight decades. Just kidding. Peter is a legend. So without further ado, let's jump into the interview with the never conventional and definitely not more than eight decades old, though he tries hard to pretend he is, Dr. Peter Weinstein dissects me. Enjoy. So I'm very, very excited and pleased and, and always with a certain amount. It's a mixture of genuine joy and actual trepidation. It's a little bit like the feeling when you see your dad going to the dance floor. Welcome back to Blood Dissection Podcast, Dr. Peter Weinstein, DVM, MBA. Thank you, Dr. Dave Nichols. I come with the same level of trepidation, excitement, pleasure. The last time we did this, we were actually in the back of a bar somewhere in San Diego, and now we're eight hours apart in different parts of the world, but um, I am always thrilled to be with you and to hang and Shoot the shite. <laughs> Shoot the shite. Very Scottish. I like that. You've done your homework. I've done. 
I have. Okay, so, Peter, I'm all prepared here. I've got your book. Good. Which I've read at least three pages into. Now, technically, I did listen to the whole audiobook, and this I use to dip into uh, quite frequently, actually, and do recommend it very often as well. I've got my list of stuff that I planned to ask, and then I got my list of stuff that was quite interesting to ask. So there's a lot of places we could blast off from here. Well, I'll tell you what. You can uh, put that in a shredder, (laughs) because I'm going to turn the tables on you today. Uh Uh-oh. I think it's only fair that you get dissected and not me. And uh, (laughs) I'm not sure if anybody has ever tried this on you before, but... Are you starting to sweat? Because I want I'm to... sweating. <laughs> I mean, I'm I sure it's it... not that hot in the UK right now, but uh, it's going to be hot when I start asking you questions. All right. I will bite. We'll see where this goes. <laughs> this might not even make it off the editing floor. <laughs> and it is actually, the sun is, it's just, it's about quarter to five in the afternoon here. And the sun gets right up over, I live, I've got to do a little scene setting here, Peter, if I can. Yeah. If you look at my window, it's like Grimwald Place in mm-hmm. Harry Potter, like the terrace of the Georgian terraces that sweep down from the hospital down a nice gentle hill to the top of Marine Parade, and then it's the English Channel beyond, which is literally shimmering like it's like turquoise and gold, uh, silver right now. It's gorgeous. But the sun just peeks over about this time, and it creeps inexorably across my front room, gradually baking it from the inside out so I may yet start sweating from the heat but it was nothing to do with the heat <laughs> that was a more of a cold sweat that came on there so all right let's do this I can understand that so let's start with an easy question mm. how did you celebrate the Queen's Jubilee I marveled at just how little England is so delighted to be taken back into what it perceives to be the halcyon days of the past and it was quite lovely in some ways, everybody putting their pictures of the Queen and Union Jacks. And there was bunting shops. Must have, do you know what bunting is, Peter? Do you have bunting across there? Yeah, yeah so it's, it's just part like of bun- baseball. Oh, wait, no. Bunting is the stuff that that goes around the stadium <laughs> and, and everything else. So, yeah. Yeah, like the little little upside-down triangles that get yeah. moving. But there were street parties everywhere. So it was quite lovely because British people need an excuse to get out in the street and get drunk. But it was really beautiful weather and everybody got out there and I was driving around I live right on the south coast of England and driving out around some of the smaller towns and villages they're very like Dame Vera Lynn you know Dame Vera Lynn from the war says we'll meet again don't know where don't know when sang a whole bunch of war tunes to the and it was her birthday it was actually in lockdown it was her birthday and they flew Spitfires my favorite plane in the whole world and like a Lancaster bomber over the town, I think it's Ditchling that she stays in, which is a little town at the bottom of the South Downs. Gorgeous little places, but it's like they're stuck in time. It was kind of beautiful, but also reminding me just how small-minded bits of England can be that hate Europe and voted us out of Brexit. And so in the end, it actually just made me feel brilliant for the Queen. Like, she's played a stormer. Whatever you think of her, she's been a, a terrific, I think a terrific person in that job and I uh, have a lot of respect for that. And my mum has met the Queen Peer. Did you know that? I did not know your mum met the Queen. She got an OBE from the Queen, which is like one below a damehood for services to education. So that was kind of cool. So the Queen I like, the monarchy, which is where my Who's the Queen comment came from. 
not necessarily so sold on. That's a Scottish thing. So yes, there you go. So question number two, another softball question: Is it true that Boris Johnson looked to you for his haircut? <laughs> I feel like as I get older, my hair wants very much to grow up to be Peter's hair. Like, <laughs> so I'm not even going to dignify that question with an answer. All right, so let's. I'm just let's, glad he's gone. What a bad leader. Let's get serious. <laughs> yes. You are possible? a global influencer, which means every once in a while you leave your home and you go other places and have a voice. As a global influencer, you get to hear issues that mm -hmm. bridge many continents, many types of practices, many people. But within the veterinary profession, we're going to focus within the veterinary profession. Is there a common thread that you hear no matter where you are and to whom you speak about the veterinary profession and some of the pain points that we're going through? What's the common thread that you hear no matter what audience you have? There's a lot of noise. I quite like spending a lot of time thinking about the signal in amongst the noise. This is helped profoundly by conversations with you know, people like you, like I'm blessed to have so many great friends and, and a, a really good tribe of peers in veterinary medicine who are much smarter than me and just are really good people to sort of talk to, bounce ideas off of. One of the recurring things, the, the bits of signal kind of comes out of all the noise, it just, by the way, can you hear the seagulls in the background? <laughs> They're so raucously loud. Uh, no, I can't, but... Um... If you hear seagulls, then it's not an effect. They're okay. just really going for it outside. So one of the, the bits of the strongest pieces of signal for me is... I call this like the, the easy button. Mm -hmm. Like, I just I feel like everybody wants the easy button. And if it isn't easy, then it's broken or isn't worth doing or, you know, it needs to be discarded. And everybody's so keen and quick to blame uh, somebody else for the challenges that we're facing. And I realize that in saying that, sometimes you say things like that and people get a bit upset. And I, I don't say that. The intent behind saying that isn't to, you know, there are situations and things happening to people that are really, really hard, out with their control and horrible. Like none of us gets a pass on that stuff, uh, you and me included. No one gets out of this alive, right? So... But there's so much stuff that is, and, and vastly more stuff that is completely, completely and utterly in our control. Like right now, I'm, I'm prepping for a, a keynote that by the time this goes out will have been delivered weeks and weeks ago. And the keynote's called, if it's not, I'm going to say the actual working title now because it's my podcast, I'm allowed, but this isn't the title of the talk, Scott. But if it's not a fuck yes, it should be a no, or it's a no. That's borrowed from one of my favorite authors, uh, Derek Sivers. And I sort of started me thinking down this, this pathway. And, and so many of us spend so much of our time on things that should be no's, but we dedicate far, far too much of our time to. And then we're not left with enough time on the things that should be absolute fuck yeses to dedicate the time that we actually need. And one of the ways this shows up in people getting stuck on not being able to do things well enough that they get good enough at those things so they become easy 
or they become second nature or they become really good. That's what we used to call mastery, excellence, perfect, uh, professionalism. Now, my tongue slipped there, and that word perfectionism is one of those things that kind of gets in people's way. But it's there's nothing not wrong at, per se with the notion of wanting to do something perfect. There's something wrong in the thinking that you ought to be perfect or you're a failure from the start. So it's it's really a timing issue. The problem that shows up is that people want and think that they ought to be brilliant at veterinary medicine from day one or they're so scared to even try to get into veterinary medicine that they'd rather take the easier pathway and not you know rather than examine our own part in a mean client interaction we'll just blame the client and throw away the possibility to learn a lesson rather than listen to the team about how toxic the culture has become and do something about it We'd rather blame the young vets for not being tough enough to put up with our brutal, toxic culture and then blame an epidemic of burnout on people being just weak and too fragile for the profession. And when you start talking to people, the answers to all of our problems, they're not particularly hard, Peter. And I I would actually love to, this is one of the things that I was really keen to hear from you about. You know, in terms of salary and making salary work, that's a budgeting exercise and a, a linked to a marketing and operations exercise. Like people could figure this stuff out pretty fast. The problem isn't in the ideation, the problem's the execution. And that's where it gets hard. So, you know, people can take a concept and go, well, that sounds easy. But then when you say to them, well, what have you done? And the answer is, well, not very much. Or we tried a little bit and it didn't work or it didn't work out the way we expected. So we stopped or we gave up. And we see this, like how many people take a course to self-improve themselves and they get no further than 15% through it. It's a staggeringly high percentage of people that buy a course and then do not do that course and suddenly expect to be better at the thing that they were trying to, you know, they were motivated enough to part with money for a course to solve a problem or to accomplish a goal, but then they lack the conviction to see it through and it's that it's that follow through it's that commitment to a goal a clarity of a goal a clarity of a motivating reason to get that job done and then a lack of a commitment to see it through I think it's costing people their careers it's costing them goodness knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars in profit a year it's robbing us you and I have done a presentation together called how do we make veterinary medicine fun again you know It's robbing us of those opportunities to have joyful places of work and joyful career experiences, you know, because we let this one thing overrun us time and time and time again. We we actually are really good at prioritizing one thing over everything else, and that's clinical medicine. And we've let it run riot over every other part of our operational life and personal lives, you know, forever. And I think that's that's at the heart of pretty much every challenge we face. Like if we've got to grapple the the we're hooked on the clinical medicine, and the easy button is just to keep going. And it's the easy path because it, it generates revenue. But Peter, I don't know how you see it, but it just looks like we're just blindly stumbling towards a really, really predictable, inevitable conclusion, and that is that we just lose, continue losing great people. It continues being just really hard and no fun in business. And we continue selling to the highest bidder 
to get out and what's left is what's like the high street now. Every high street, it looks the same. It's the same monochrome of boring malls, nothing exciting, concreted strips of land where, you know, your convenience is seen to, but your soul is just missing. Wow. Now I have to unpack all of that. And um, I agree in principle with everything that you said and the logic that you went through. I have a business named Simple Solutions for Vets because we're trying to identify the easy button. That was where you started. And you brought it back down at the end to clinical medicine. Well, in the E-Myth, the original one, E-Myth Revisited and then in the E-Myth Veterinarian, we talk about technicians who have an entrepreneurial seizure. <laughs> yeah. Veterinarians are technicians. We went to veterinary school. You went to veterinary school. I went to veterinary school. Wow, look at that. I got them both. Look how yellow those pages are. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an indication of the fact that it was from the 80s. <laughs> so we are technicians. What's the safe zone, David? Is The safe zone for a technician is surgery. It's the exam yeah. room. It's the treatment area. And so we have many veterinarians who own, let me retract that. We have many veterinarians who work for businesses that they own. And I said it specifically in that way. They work for, they have jobs within a business that they own, but they don't know how to run the business that they own, that owns them. So the thing that we need to look at globally, and maybe the corporations to a degree are doing this, is they're taking veterinarians and putting them back in their comfort zone by not having them have to manage the business. They're just being technicians and being doctors. And being a doctor first comes with fun because you get to be a doctor, which is what you went to school with. Being an owner comes with additional challenges that we weren't educated for. And most of us aren't prepared for because it's a different skill set. It's a different part of your brain from that standpoint. So as a doctor, I want the best for my patients and hopefully the best for my clients concurrently. But everything else, man, if it just ran like a McDonald's and we could just pump out the burgers without my having to think about it, that would be so much easier. So you hit a lot of different things in your monologue there that are symptoms of this ongoing disease. Now, the outcome of all of these symptoms or the diagnosis of all of these symptoms that has come forward is this concept of burnout. I mean, that is an outcome of a disease, but what's the cause? Now, you brought a, a lot of different things as potential causes, but if my question to you were, Dave, okay, wellness issues are not a primary they're a secondary. What are they secondary to? What is burnout and wellness secondary to, in your opinion? Oh, I was going to take it back one further than that and just even say there are some words that are almost trigger words for me now. Uh-oh. I'll get my yeah. Kevlar on. No, 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 no. They're trigger words, not in the necessarily the traditional sense, but, but just that I take more notice of these words now because they've been tossed around a lot and I've experienced burnout in my career when the weird thing was I didn't know I was experiencing burnout until I removed myself from the situation which is probably more a reflection on me or maybe that is that is classic but 
we like to create words and phrases that allow things to be explained quite easily and put in little boxes because it makes it easier for us to understand and deal with. That's helpful for an understanding, but is it always helpful for, is it always the best use of language to support what we're trying to accomplish? So I am burned out. That's a pretty heavy thing to say. And burnout, you know, it's a, it's a real thing. There's a set of, you know, symptoms that will go with that. I don't think everybody who says they're burned out is burned out. Now, a lot of it's perception as well. But sometimes we're just really freaking tired and need a holiday. And we'll, we'll be good if we just, you know, you get some sleeps. And I actually, Peter, this is an interesting thing. I've got this thing on my wrist. I don't know if you can see mm-hmm. that. That is a, it's called a whoop sensor and it's something it's an adjunct to training that I've started working with because I've started to do triathlon a bit more seriously and it measures how much physical exertion you journal a whole bunch of non-editable fields of what's going on in your day and it calculates a, a, a strain score for your day and the thinking is that the amount of strain that's in your day you need to counterbalance that with something else And the researchers behind this is sleep is the restorative thing that helps your body recover, both brain and and body. And so you need to balance those two things up. And what's really interesting in the data that this is generating is just how out of balance certain things are. And it takes you deeper into reading about, you know, what the different phases of sleep really are and how they help your brain. And that that slow wave sleep is really where a lot of the physical recovery is happening. And, you know, and you need to get a certain amount of that. And there's a lot of growth hormone is, is released at that point. And a lot of a lot of the good stuff that's helping you reset is happening in that moment. And then you've got your REM sleep where that's a lot of where the dreams happen. And the short term is converted into long term memories. And, and then an enormous amount of our time is light sleep isn't terribly useful at all or awake. And our sleep hygiene is so, so important. So if we're all stress bunnies or we're burning the candle at both ends, and this is something I've been guilty of my entire career, how does that make things sustainable? Now, so what I'm really saying is that there are certainly, like there's lots of people report being burned out. Like it's a phenomenally high number up in the 80 plus percent. It's ridiculous. Not all of those people are burned out. Some of them are tired. But the use of a word like burnout I just, I always think I'm really careful about using that word because sometimes I feel tired in my bones. I'm like, I'm just tired. I'm not burned out because I remember when I was burned out and I'm like, yeah, this is really different to that. And imposter syndrome is another one that really gets me going. And again, imposter syndrome, there is a syndrome of it, but for most people, what they're experiencing is stepping out of their comfort zone and it feeling a bit weird and their inability to deal with the fact that they may fail and be found out. Well, you know, welcome to the world. You know, this is what we all have to do and go through to get good at something. So those two words are a little bit triggering. Right, sorry, sidebar. They're triggering because they're disempowering for the person that uses them if the thing that they're describing isn't the thing they think they're describing. And people, well, again, throw rocks at me for saying that. Well, you're just, you know, gaslighting people who've got that. Like, you know, whatever. In terms of your question about, so burnout's a symptom, what's the cause? I think it's chronically poor decisions <laughs> that people are, you know, we're having this inflicted on us and we are not being, we're being reactive 
not proactive to the environment in which we're in. And I think every single one of those decisions is within somebody in veterinary medicine's control. Like coronavirus was not in our control. Uh, paying our tax bill, the deadline is not in our control. But who walks in our front door as a client? Who walks in our front door as a teammate? The hours we open, the times we take our lunch breaks, the prices we charge, the medicines we have on the shelf, the standard of care we wish to represent, every single bit of that is within our control. Now, it's not if you're an associate, assistant vet, it's not within your control who you're going to hire. But it is within your control who you choose to work, where you choose to work, your boundaries you set, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do. It is within your control, you know, how you look after yourself and what decisions you make after work. Those things are in your control. So that would be my answer. So there are extrinsic and intrinsic influencers. Yeah. We can control the intrinsic. That's where we want the easy button. We have no control on the extrinsic which is where we fall back because it's much easier to blame everything else than to fix the intrinsic. And burnout actually fits into one of the first things you said because it's an easy button. It's a fallback. It's a cubbyhole or a cubicle to throw everything in. A whole plethora of symptoms. Like ain't doing right. You know? It just, they'd all fit into <laughs> But I, I think your explanation of poor decision-making is a very good one because I do think that we are overly influenced by extrinsic variables that we can control intrinsically. For example, the hours that we're open, as you mentioned, the clients that we see. And it goes back to a little bit of the almost a James Harriet syndrome of trying to be everything to everybody, which means you're nothing to nobody. And we don't do a very good job of taking care of ourselves to the detriment of ourselves, but secondarily to our team, which then leads to no management, no leadership, you know, some of the many things that you talk about, and lack of sleep or lack of a, a useful sleep. I think we have a lack of that deep REM3 sleep that prevents us from regrowing our brain cells that we have burned out throughout the day. I think there's room for REM1, which is almost that meditative state that we should work on throughout. But I think if, if doctors, managers, leaders were to sit down and take a piece of paper and draw two columns, extrinsic variables, intrinsic variables, which extrinsic variables do I worry about? Get my heart rate up. Which intrinsic variables can I control? And stop worrying about, don't sweat the small stuff, which goes back mm -hmm. with your, you know, do what gets you great, not what gets you good. And that goes to the Derek Sievers book that you mentioned earlier. But I was trying not to use the F word because I leave that for you as much as I can. <laughs> so I'm spot on with you. I love this concept of poor decision making as a cause for some of the problems that we have. Now, you're a hospital owner. Do you walk the walk and talk the talk? I think so. I think what's interesting is, I mean, feel free to probe further about where this is, but we undertook certain things through necessity and coronavirus when it first locked down to 
protect the welfare of the team that have turned out to be excellent long-term decisions. And one of those things was, you know, I was just, I was thinking, I was actually having a conversation with a client who'd phoned me up and said, Dave, look, this is, this is nuts. We're just being completely overrun here. What do we do? Like, what should we do about this? And my knee-jerk response was, well, what does Uber do when it rains? What does the airline do when you buy a ticket the last minute and there's no seats? You know, it's simple economics, like scarcity means prices go up. That certainly, I mean, that must happen just now because of inflation, but it's certainly, it's a good strategy. And it's, it's a very well road-tested strategy, but it comes with certain ethical challenges because it hurts the heart of vets to not do work. The hardest decision, I think, certainly for me, and let me only really speak to my experience, but the hardest decision for a veterinarian to make is to euthanize an animal we could have saved. And the younger that animal is, the harder it is, which is why that hospital up in Maine have just gotten flamed senseless. I was having another conversation earlier with, like there will be vets up and down America, all around the world right now that have been put in the ethical situation of having to euthanize an animal they could save and instead they have they are now faced with the dilemma of do I have this animal signed over and I treat it or do I go ahead and euthanize it and live with that and it's certainly, you know, the two times in my career and I think I was the two times that jump out at me is times I was I was scarred in both these occasions they were, you know, one was a young dog which had a foreign body and the other was a, a cat that got stuck in the middle. You know, they both were injured, both needed intervention or they were going to be in trouble. Uh, they, you know, they're in trouble. They were going to succumb to their injuries. Both needed interventions. And for totally different reasons, both required euthanizing. And I remember after having to put down the cat because, man, that cat loved me. That cat loved and it trusted me. And, and you know... And it was only, it was such a short time, but you know those, you know the ones, the cats and the dogs, they'll just love on you and they've just got that gene. And to to put that cat down and see the light flicker out in its eyes, like, I'm, yeah, I'm feeling it right now. It's not, I just made a, a decision in that moment, I wouldn't do that again. And so when you think about just putting prices up, if what you potentially are creating is more of those opportunities to happen for your team because there's going to be more people that can't say yes so in the practice we decided I thought about this and I thought you know what there's a few levers we could pull here the first one is it's the James Herriot thing why do we have to be all things to all people let's think about let's remodel our service and think about what we are and what we are not what we're willing to do and what we're not going to do what things we might put down now we're a general practice and we're a community practice. So that wasn't the lever we went to. We examined our business and said, actually, we're very good at dentistry. We're very good at uh, geriatric senior pet care. We're very good as a family practice with a friendly vibe, friendly culture. We're well respected in the community. That's our thing. So we want to, we want to continue to offer those things without too much of a service limitation beyond what we already do. We work with peripatetic surgeons. We refer cases out for to ER, you know, so we know our boundaries. Okay, fine. Well, it's not that then. What about work volume controls? We'd actually done this way before the pandemic so we could do a good job. And so we we have half our appointments as standard. We booked a maximum number of appointments, uh, surgical slots per doctor per day. 
and we put some fairly clunky volume controls in place that probably weren't the best business decisions, but they were pretty good decisions for the team. We've since refined those, and now we've got a really cool point system in place that's just knocking out the park for that. So that's kind of cool. But the thing that we did that made the biggest difference was we put in place a new client screening process where, and, and this remains to this day, you cannot register at my practice as a client. It is physically not possible. You cannot, unless you're an emergency, we'll always see an emergency in a walk-in where we're legally obliged to do that. But if you're phoning up for a booster vaccine to register as a client, you cannot do that. You're going to have to apply to become a client. And in that application form, we're going to ask you, we're going to tell you who we are as a practice, we are going to ask you to make a commitment, a checkbox commitment, as a statement of intent as a pet owner, that you sign up to look after the wellness needs of your pet, that when we recommend some form of treatment to your pet, that you say yes, and that you commit to, to doing the minimum standards of care that's going to help your pet live a happy, healthy life. And that's because our brand promise is if you choose our practice for your pet, your pet will live two or three years longer than if you did not. If you feed the crappy food, if you don't look after its teeth, if you don't do the parasite control, you don't pick up disease early, all those things we all know. But if you don't do those things, your pet doesn't live two years longer than it would have done otherwise, as an average. Okay. And so we ask people to make that commitment. And the brilliant thing is that some people complete that form and tick no. <laughs> and I feel like every time we do that, we just saved the horrible review on Google. It was always coming. It's just a matter of time, right? And our client registration slowed down for a little bit. It gave us breathing space in amongst the crazy. And it's allowed, you know, allowed a lot of other things to bed in in our practice. We were working alongside that. And that's then enabled us to grow at the fastest rate the practice has ever grown, which a lot of practices can say, but growth isn't, growth alone is just for the sake of growth is nothing. The team are not breaking, the team are happy and the team enjoy coming to work in this place. That is what, for me, is what success looks like. Like we've got a business that's doing good medicine. It's a business that's being done at a fair price for the pet owner. And it's a business that is being done in a sustainable way for the team as well. And that word sustainability, those two words really, it's sustainability and intentionality. They're the two things that we've tried to bake in and we think about and talk about kind of in, in our team meetings or planning meetings or processes. Um, so yeah, I would say that's that's one example, but I could give you 10 examples of ways that we walk the walk and don't just talk the talk. You know, everything I go speak about is stuff that we have either tried, grappled with and failed or has worked brilliantly. And I'll, you know, that practice is just a sandbox so I can go out and talk about real stuff. Well, you also know, you also know what sandboxes are used for with cats, right? <laughs> and there's plenty of that as well at times as well like some of the ideas just don't work and that's fine you know i think the last three or two of the last two words that you used at the end sustainability and intentionality actually define the fact that your practice has a vision and some goals and aspirations i think one of the issues that that many of our technicians who had entrepreneurial seizures is the fact that they are living in Groundhog's Day, the movie, you know? Yeah, totally. And, and they just keep repeating the same mistakes each day, every day, until the pain gets too bad that they have to change or they just become going through the motions. The hamster wheel. Oh, wait, whose podcast was that? <laughs> <laughs> you went from 
the hamster wheel to blunt dissection of the hamsters that were on the wheel. So <laughs> it's an interesting discussion because we've got this pre-coronavirus practice. Yeah. We have the coronavirus practice. And then we have this coming out of the coronavirus into the future practice. And what I think you have done is helped create a sustainable post-coronavirus practice that will continue to help your team be able to provide optimal, affordable, best care for your patients and your clients that isn't going to be reactive, which is what's happened during coronavirus, but will be proactive in looking at the needs of all of the stakeholders, you, the team, the clients, and the pets. And, and that global overview, looking at all of the stakeholders and making decisions that can positively impact all of those takes a vision. It takes a direction. It takes a decision, an intentional decision that says, we want to provide this standard with our mission and our vision. Do you want to be part of our family? And if you don't, don't tick the box. And if you do, tick the box, but we're going to hold you accountable. And I'm gathering, now I'm going to digress from the patient client. I am gathering that everybody on your team who you employ has ticked their own box that says, I am committed to your vision, your mission, your direction, your values. And as I remain employed here, I will follow that lead as well. 100%. I think that's probably... You know, really what you're starting to outline there, if you pull away the, you know, let's go behind the the outer set of Harry Potter and look at the machine works behind it. You know, for years, I feel like I was that guy. I was having that entrepreneurial seizure. You know, my, my first practice was definitely that, that, you know, it improved with time. But I remember just thinking, gosh, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time reacting to things. And I'm spending a lot of energy. I was betting that it was like the there's a football team in, and I mean a soccer team in the UK called Newcastle United, and they're my favourite English club. And they there was a few years they were managed by a manager called Kevin Keegan, and he had the team playing such gorgeous football. That's a thumbs up from Pierre for Kevin. Such Keegan. gorgeous, absolutely. Such gorgeous football. It looked like they were going to win the Premier League the first season. I think it was It was there. It was maybe 93 or 94. I was in my first year at university, the vet school. And they called them the entertainers because they played beautiful football. And it didn't matter. If you scored three, they were going to score five. That was their strategy. They were just going to play you off the park. Now, their defense leaked goals as well because they were all up the other end, knocking the ball in the net. So it was going to be a wild ride, whatever happened. And I feel like that was, that's a quite close analogy to what my first efforts in practice ownership were. Like I was just so absolutely certain that my offense, my attack, would do the job. And that attack was the ability to be great with clients and be an all-round veterinarian capable of doing good things. And my energy was enough to drive this through. But it came at such cost to you know, like relationships or missed opportunities or, you know, admin not getting done and paying more bloody tax bills or something like that. You know, there's a tax on that kind of approach. And I feel like 
the my practice in London is, is different. It's completely different. And one of the things, and I would say that coronavirus was actually a bit of a gift in this regard, because it forced us. You know, we went like many people. In part of this talk, I'm doing. You know, I say like in 2019, the things seemed good. Like life, so you think back to those days. You think, man, those days were good. And yeah, and, and you know, and I had, I had separated myself from a clinical career. I had a, a great speaking career, traveling the world. Practice was going well. And by March 2020, I had no speaking career, and my practice had nosedived by 75 percent. And it was really oh shit moment. And that moment really forced a lot of us to have to think differently and think about how to do things differently. And it was that time that I really found a strategic planning process. And it's at that time, I'd always made values an important part of the practice, but I hadn't extended that to a really well articulated purpose, a why, and a mission uh, with boundaries as a what. And it was really linking those three things together that started to bring a lot of clarity. But then that's fine, that, but that's just an idea. It was the strategic planning process of getting very intentional about what projects you were going to work on to move the ball down the pitch that then started accelerating the business and started moving us away from being reactive to suddenly being much more proactive. Because guess what? When you're doing the strategic planning process and you do a, a thorough, deep analysis of your business, you find the problems. And then you can proactively think upstream about how you fix the problems. And when you do that, the problems stop. And now, oh my goodness, now we've got time to think about getting on the front foot in this business. And of course, as we were doing that, we were doing good medicine. We built a decent employer brand. So we've never really struggled to hire people. So the point you made then about, you know, yes, we ask our clients to make a commitment to the practice, which is based on a certain level of medicine. We absolutely, and more importantly, ask, and we hire, we manage, and we fire to the values and the vision. And we're completely accountable to them. And they stay, you know, they are, they are at the heart of pretty much every decision we make. So when you, for example, when we have a strategic planning meeting, we will be referencing these values. When I've got some uh, team one-to-ones to have fairly soon, when we have those one-to-ones, part of the review of the person is how well have they lived the values. Our, bonus, our bonuses are tied into living the values, not just doing the work. So we made culture really the heart of it. And we call it culturification. And we've got a, you know, we've actually got a vision poster and it's called Mission Butterfly. And there's a giant big sunflower at the start of it. And it's butterfly because the journey starts, you know, the butterfly starts out as an egg and eventually it becomes a caterpillar, then a chrysalis, then it becomes this beautiful butterfly. And that's our four-year plan to grow the business. And it has all of this information detailed on it. And right at the bottom in the roots are our values. And and we've then broken those values down into what, like, so one of them is honesty. Well, what does honesty mean? One of them is uh, growing and learning. Well, what does that mean? If you don't define them, it's people get to make up their version of it. And so we effectively curated what all of those things meant. And that just made a terrific difference. And there's still days, and don't get me wrong, there's still days where it makes me want to pull my hair out and headbutt a wall. But they're really rare. And there's so many more days where I just think, fuck, I'm, I'm amazed by my team. They do such brilliant work. And how can I 
give them more opportunities to keep doing more, getting better, having more fun and enjoy working together. And I think that's that's what's been successful. And it was that was a gift that coronavirus gave us because it forced us. And we went through some, some pain in the process, for sure, as we were redefining this. But it forced us to reimagine, reevaluate, and go a lot deeper into this stuff. So, so yeah. you created a social contract with your people and with your clients. And yep. um, it's value-based. You have... And, one of the things that you have done is you have built a building, a business on very solid cement, concrete. And that business, and, and I have a, a talk that I do on this, but that, that foundation upon which the business is built is leadership. And those pillars, vision, mission, values, and standards of care support the business. Without any of one of those pillars, you have a very unstable business. Don't tell me about the three-legged stool. I understand that is the, probably the most you know stable thing. But without having you and your team in strong leadership-based concrete, you can have those pillars, but they're sitting in quicksand. So I simplified what you just said into a talk that I'm going to be doing called People and Purpose Over Profits. Because with the right people and the right purpose, you don't have to worry about the profits. They will come. And I think that that's what you're saying is that with engaged, committed people doing intentional work with the right purpose in mind, which are your standards and the vision and direction that you have, then you're not worried about, well, maybe we should supersize this today so we can make some more fries. Basically, or sell some more fries <laughs> or a larger shake. You're going to sell the burgers that you need and the quality of the burgers that you want to be able to pay the bills, to be able to pay your staff, to give them careers, not just jobs. And you've done it using something that I feel is not done enough in this profession. That's planning. That's proactive. I mean, and again, it goes back to you took the time to set a direction. You program something into the GPS that gives you a place to go. I think there are way too many people driving around the streets of London, Los Angeles, New York, trying to find some place because they don't have a direction. Okay, you used uh, football, American soccer earlier. I don't know if your daughter plays soccer, football. My kids played a little bit. And now I know you. they also call soccer the beautiful game, right? Yeah, they're wrong. Rugby's much more beautiful, but there we go. <laughs> but if you watch little kids playing soccer, the soccer ball, all the people run around the soccer ball, and it's like ants chasing a breadcrumb. <laughs> and that if we use the soccer ball as the owner of the hospital... All of the ants that are surrounding them are just following them around with no direction. But when you have a well-played soccer game, well-played football game, there may be somebody who's out on the wing that nobody's paying attention to, that you can get the ball to, and then get everybody to move in that direction, which opens up the center of the field, and you pass the ball. Well, a successful team 
isn't dependent upon one person. It's dependent upon everybody with a common goal and a common focus and a common direction to get to the outcome. If I'm looking forward to uh, you opening a new hospital called the Beautiful Game Veterinary Hospital <laughs> that talks about the fact that it's all about the team that ultimately leads to the outcome. And the Kevin Keegans of the world, the coaches of the world, are the ones who ultimately help set the direction for the team to get to that ultimate outcome. Whether it's a goal, a ball in a net, or a goal of being able to provide optimal care at an affordable price to your community, it's all about the team to get there. So how do we, as a global profession, move from reactive, chasing the, the little breadcrumb around, to proactive, setting a direction and a plan without an easy button, because that's what everybody wants. But honestly, correct me if I'm wrong, I would suggest 10% of the hospitals that I've been in contact with have any plan, if that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, you ask them, how many of you have got a vision statement? And I would say it's closer to 5% of hands in a room will go up. And you ask them, like, recite back any part of your vision statement. And if you can hear anything back at all, which mostly you can, you will find that you have a mission, a vision and values, which I'm not a fan of. And the mission will be something really vague and whiffly, and the vision will be even worse. And then the values will just be one word, or there'll be millions of them, and good luck trying to hire anybody who shares more than five or six values anyway. It's not terribly healthy. So the answer, I think, is that there is no easy button. That is the problem. That goes full circle back to what I said at the start. Like, everyone wants a freaking easy button. It doesn't exist. We have to do the hard work. And the hugely ironic thing is that the same people that blame millennials for not wanting to do the hard work of learning how to be a vet, the same people that are unwilling or unaware or just you know, unconsciously incompetent at doing the work that is required to be a good leader. And being a good leader, people also have this notion that being a good leader is, it's telling everyone what to do. Like you say, you know, being the crumb at the center of the ant field and being a good leader is so much more about being, setting the vision and, and the strategy, hiring. Yeah, I think there's three jobs that every practice owner has. If you've got your practice owner hat on, I know you wear a lot of hats, but there's three jobs that this particular, the boss, the CEO, the owner, the head honcho has above all else. Job one is to create the vision and articulate it. Job two is to build the team around that vision capable of delivering it. Job three is don't run out of fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> I was right? going to suggest job three was get out of the way, but that's okay. We can go with don't run out of effing money. <laughs> I think don't get, get out of the way is quite handy as well. But but in our small teams, we probably can't get completely out of the way because then this is so alien to people. Then it's like, wait, we've got a vision. We've got a strategy. We should say no to that client because they've demonstrated bad values. I had a client recently who are a potential client and I wouldn't say for what business this was, but a potential client who contacted the, 
the business because they hadn't had a callback as quickly as they would have liked. And, and in truth, and in fairness to them, it was much longer than it, it should have been. And a snotty email was received saying, you know, obviously I'm not the right fit for you. So, you know, thanks for nothing. May your next shit be a pineapple or words to that effect. <laughs> and there, there was a sort of email and it, had, it went straight to judgment. Now, in fairness to them, an email should have gone back much sooner. But what wasn't in fairness to them was that the reason it didn't was because I had coronavirus, <laughs> you know, from which I've just recovered. And that backed up a whole ton of shit because I lost a couple of days of my week. And so to me, that was a brilliant example of somebody perfectly ruling themselves out as being a client because they just didn't fit with the values. That was just going straight to judgment. It would have been just as easy to write an email going, hey, I, I applied, I haven't heard back, don't know if my email got lost or whatever, no problem. But they kind of went on the attack and got all butthurt over nothing. That's not somebody I want to spend time with in my life. So instant rule out, did us both a favor. That was the equivalent of ticking the, no, I don't want to do the right things for my pet box on the, on the pet. So good luck to them. But you know, good- Dave, our colleagues, and present company included, have a very difficult yeah. time saying no. 100%! And, and, like, it's, the, it's probably the disease. Right. I mean, there used to be a, a, maybe it was the Nancy Reagan era, just say no to drugs. Oh, you just say no. That was the phrase. Yeah. We've got Nike saying, just do it. And just say no. And they get in, in they Can battle imagine? for each other right now. Imagine if Nancy had just come out and said, uh, just do it, just do drugs, kids. <laughs> just do drugs. And that kid said, like, just say no. Yeah, it, it would be... It where would, be where would Michael Jordan have been then? Yes, we one shoe on and one shoe off. So what's interesting, and, and I, I don't know if you've asked this question at, at your talks recently, but we have fired more clients in the last two years during COVID because mm. of attitudes. Yeah. Um than we have fired in decades before. And the reaction from the team and from the ownership is, why didn't we do this sooner? I think what you've done is take a proactive stance that says, well, you don't have to fire somebody if you don't let them in the door in the first place. It's a glass half full versus a glass half empty. I had made a mental switch in my, this was before coronavirus. Actually, it wasn't. It was, it was as it was switching, I'd, I'd made the switch that, Recruitment was just marketing. And I, I'd started a couple of years before that really treating recruitment like marketing. It is. And then coronavirus came on and I thought, shit, this has flipped around. We now should be recruiting for clients and marketing to job seekers. And so we actually put in barriers. And, and you know what? Like we also fire clients. But it was, when I bought the practice, there was a thousand clients on the books. Right, and we knew we knew we were going to have to get rid of fifty percent of them because they were not the right fit client for what we wanted. So that was a liability we took on in the business, knowing we'd have to do that. And over the sort of six years that we've had it, we morphed that that client base into we are a very boutique practice. I mentioned we do thirty minute appointments. You know, we're not cheap, but we're not you know insanely expensive either. We do solid work at a fair price and we've got a good reputation for ourselves in in our neighborhood in london 
but we will fire clients. But the, the, the tricky thing about that is knowing which clients, you know, the clients that you're firing for good reasons and bad reasons, because everybody's more inclined to be a bit of a jerk at the minute. And that includes us. And, you know, we have all been that jerk in some business in our lives. And we're just much more inclined to be that at the minute. And if we give our clients the opportunity to become that jerk, then it's not saying the clients, it's acceptable for them, depends what they do, but it's not acceptable for them to abuse us. But we've also got to be careful and just go, what was our part in this? Like, are they actually just a flaming asshat and need to be out of our business now? Or did we take somebody who's actually pretty reasonable most of the time and just give them a big fat opportunity to blow up and be their worst version of themselves and in that case we shouldn't be firing that client we should be looking at our systems processes people and perhaps apologizing because most monsters can become very easily tamed and little puppies with an apology absolutely most relationships are recoverable from that so we've not fired an insane number of clients but i think our reviews have stayed good our our clients are you know they're not always fun but they're mostly fun and our team seem to enjoy working with them because there's not too many of them in any one day. They work much shorter shifts. They work on average about an eight-hour shift a day with half-hour appointments, with a limitation in number of surgeries they're going to do. They get their breaks, and that makes the whole thing sustainable. And it makes profit. One of the things I learned when I was working in the corporate world for two years was yep. no employee should be surprised when you're firing them. Ah, <laughs> yes, no. Quite. So you're preparing your employees based upon conversations, written reviews, etc. So when yeah. it comes down to the time that you say you're fired, can't even do a Trump on that one. <laughs> was that a Trump? Fire? That was just bad. I thought, you were, I thought that was a John Wayne. It was more like John Wayne, yes. But I would suggest the same thing for your clients. Is that like if this. you're going to fire a client, there's got to be something that they are understanding that it's just not a cultural fit between them and the practice. Whether they're chronically late, whether they constantly complain about the bill, whatever the case may be, there should be a series of events that leads to it unless they are threatening or over-the-top difficult with your team and they treat yeah. you and your team differently. And I have a very hard time having to defend a client in those situations. But you know as well as I do that there are veterinarians who are so reticent to lose a client because of the A, the money, and B, the reviews, that they will undermine their relationship with their staff because of those concerns. So as a leader, you have to set the example and having those values and standards and doing your due diligence before you fire a client. Could we have done better? The systems and processes, I use your word, not mine, processes. Are you sure? <laughs> when I think of systems and processes, I think of you. No, no, process versus process. <laughs> I've infected you. <laughs> you have infected me. I've got, uh, anyhow, systems and processes. Is there something wrong? Did we not make the right appointment time? Did we forget to send home the medication? I mean, there is frequently a mistake that was made internally that led to the reaction externally. 
And some of it is just the way things have been handled on the telephone. And, and I can talk about all sorts of customer services experiences I've had with hotels and airfares and airlines and everything else, as I'm sure you can. But I want to I want to go back and I want to focus and I don't know how much time you have for this interview today. <laughs> since I've completely turned it on you from the beginning. But I want to go back to an area that you and I both believe in very strongly. Two areas, leadership and mentorship. How do we take the profession into the next era, whatever that's going to be? How do we identify, grow, support, and get the leaders necessary to take the cart and pull it into the right direction in contrast to just following what's been done in the past. What do we need to do to build the leadership necessary? And this is at all levels. And I would suggest it's at the organized veterinary medicine level, the education level, the practice level, and the regulatory level. We've got four different silos in that case. How do we get the leadership to have a new vision for the profession going forward because without that vision, we're just chasing our own tail. I'm going to pause because, and when I usually pause, it's because there's 10 different thoughts spiraling around my head at the same time. I thought I'm I stumped you, but that's okay. No, it's, well, I mean, I don't, yeah, no one, yes. I mean, yes. How the fuck do I know? <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> you know, I wrote down in my book, Past, Present, and Future, and I don't think the three should be dissociated from each other mentoring is a huge bit of the puzzle i mean there's let's you can get really granular on this and if you go at the top level i would suggest that all of those conversations are happening right now they're already happening they're just happening where the vested interests lie and that is the money like the corporate organizations are already having this conversation and carving up whatever their version of veterinary medicine is going to look like it's a hot space at the minute. There is much money in it. Eventually, the private equity money will wash through, wash out, and we will be left picking up the pieces on the other side, whatever it looks like. I say that provocatively because maybe it's not picking up the pieces. Maybe it's dealing with or you know working out the change. But there's no question that anything that is attempted to happen that does not involve conversations with the boots on the ground, you know, the rank and file of veterinary medicine as in the veterinarians the technicians and nurses the customer service team members the manager echelons it is almost doomed to just be some giant box ticking exercise in a boardroom it's such a big topic like it's it you couldn't give an answer that would do it any justice or be followable in any non-utterly boring way with me just talking and i don't have all of those answers but what I do have is my, my experience for what's worked with my practice, what I think we need to do and what I think we really don't need to do. And there's a, if I could focus on what I think mentorship is huge. I think mentorship is effectively the bridge from the past to the future. And one of the things I see that makes me sad and gets me a little upset is when I see people bagging out the dinosaurs. I'm going to use their words, not mine. You know, there are people I'm not pointing any fingers but there are people who like to blame white-haired old men for lots of stuff and the irony being that they're you know being ageist 
the, the men bit I got a hard time defending because frankly it seems like men have totally fucked the planet and continue to screw things up but I have experience in Margaret Thatcher so I remember <laughs> maybe it's just politicians are just rotten but to blame people with white hair for stuff is really tossing out an awful lot of wisdom and you might not like what they stood for you might not like what they stand for now and it feels like it's from a different age but that does not mean there's rich wisdom in there you know there is so much you don't just because you don't want to work a 12 hour day and by the way I agree with that like why should you keep doing that you're going to you are going to break if you do that but just because that was their expectation does not mean that they don't have a lot of good stuff to share like the archetype here I suppose is that the old I actually remember this guy right now if I, when I'm thinking of the archetypal old practice owner from the Harriet days and I've got a picture in my head and this is a guy who used to work in a practice in Kilmarnock if there's any listeners and it wasn't Kilmarnock it was a place called Mocklin and I think it was, it was the partnership was Barr and Macmillan and the guy was the origi- one of the original or, or the partners the named partners and I was seeing practice there as maybe a, a fourth or final year vet student. And I went in this practice in Mocklin and you know, this old guy comes in the room and he's got this smile and he's got this mouth full of veneers. Like it's just, I swear to goodness, Peter, when he smiled, there was a ting came off of his <laughs> veneers. It was, and when he got clients in the room, it was insane how they just ate from the palm of his hand. It was insane how well he handled those clients because he'd known them for decades. There was such a level of trust in that relationship. And it wasn't abused. You know, everyone was very respectful, casual. But he just had this winning smile. And that I saw that time after time after time. You know, the feature of that generation was their adeptness at relation, forming relationships and having relationships with people. Now, they didn't have phones. Maybe that's something to do with it. They're mobile phones. Maybe they, you know, they had to spend time actually communicating with other human beings face-to-face, so they were more practiced at it than, than people get the chance now, especially our poor students had to go through COVID in the, the last years of their, their vet school experience. But that, that's, that's a skill that's so missing now. And when you look at, you know, I didn't answer your question at the start, clients. I could have answered clients because everyone says, what's the hardest thing? Clients are such a pain in my ass. It just, And you're like, for as long as that's our mindset, we're actually in big trouble for as long as that's our mindset. You know, I think leadership and leadership's attitude towards how we structure our businesses, the lack of vision, the lack of structure, the lack of putting the team first is one of the issues. The other one is the veterinary profession's attitude toward clients. Clients are not the enemy. And for as long as we treat them like we are, then we're going to keep having a problem. And Mr. McMillan, I think it was, he got that. He understood. And he wasn't subservient to clients. He wasn't kneeling at their altar. But he understood the relationship and he knew how to build it. And everybody loved Mr. McMillan. I saw that with Sam Duff, another of my veterinary heroes. I saw that with Sandy Howe. I saw that with uh, Fiona Burnett. I saw that with so many, Dr. Bell, my own family physician, when I was growing up. These people were titans of the ability to communicate and engage with pet owners. They gave a shit about them. And they went home. I remember working my practice back in St. Andrews. They went home at six o'clock at night and we're done. 
They occasionally did on call, but they went home at night, six o'clock, we're done. Then along came the birth of, well, we must serve clients at all costs. And the really big push to customers and, and clients come first. And now we're all opening 24 hours and all the hours God sends. And this is where it starts to get a bit messy. This is maybe where some of the fun started going out because there's no space for fun when we're tired and broken. And we sort of pulled back from that a little bit and we've diversified. And But now, now we've got, I, I think we've never had such an opportunity to have a great life in veterinary medicine. So many options and opportunities available to us. You want to work four hours a week? Great, go plug into somebody's system and work four hours a week. You want to work in ER only? Go work in ER only. You work in a GP that doesn't do after hours? Go do it. And yet we've never had higher levels of burnout and dissatisfaction. Why is that? Because we read the news. <laughs> That's a big part. No, I'm, okay. The best thing about COVID... These things as well. Yes, well, that's where we read the news. Goddamn devices. Or we get pinged by things from CNN or whatever. The best thing about COVID was it showed the veterinary profession that we can change. In March of 2020, we went from the classic follow the leader practice, the linear practice, to curbside. And by the way, anybody who listens to this, if, if you are the first practice in the world who went curbside, I'm still trying to figure out who came up with the idea and all of a sudden came up with this curbside concept. Because if nothing else, it showed the veterinary profession that we could change. Because we've been really reticent to change for like 5,000 years since Noah, the first veterinarian. But we changed. Now, we changed in the middle of a mental health crisis that was fueled by a virus. We are not normal people to be stuck inside with masks and socially distanced. I mean, as much as we have a world of agoraphobics, we also are a world that integrates with one another. So we have mental health issues amongst our clients that have demyelinated the nerves of our clients and made them more hyper-reactive to things that are not, they're not happy about. And we have ourselves being demyelinated because of change, number one. I mean, studies have indicated that the part of the brain that reacts to change is the same part of the brain that reacts to extreme torture. So <laughs> isn't that sad? Yes. So for the last two years, we've gone through change. Now, we're at a great point right now. We're at an inflection point where we can continue to work on the changes that we have made and build practices that have maybe 12 staff working two full-time equivalents. So everybody's got a life balance. And maybe we hire three doctors for two full-time equivalents. So they have a life balance. And maybe we have a morning doctor and an afternoon doctor, or a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, however we want to do it. But we have a chance to do that. We have a chance to make the changes for the next generation. So we learn from the past, we control the present, and we set the direction for the future. But the worst thing that we can do, in my opinion, is to completely do a, a 180, 360, and go back to the way we were and expect things to be the same. But that's the easy button, isn't it, Doctor? The easy it button really... would be to go back to the way things were and just continue to do things the way they were and hope things are going to change, definition of insanity. It is. And, you know, I feel like innovation 
is probably baked into the system. When you look, that's the other thing that jumped out at me from COVID was, it was the, from fear to empowerment, how many people started side hustles? And how many people are just actually really creative? Like we consider veterinarians to be all scientific and all very sort of logical. And, and that's not true at all. You know, we're human. And that means there's a, a fair spectrum of people who are actually really creative and got into art. And I've had several of them on this podcast who got into music, who started making stuff, selling stuff on Etsy, you know, who started writing, who, you know, there's so many, so many ways to express. Like, I feel like to be innovative is baked into the human being. The bridge from the, the past to the future, you know, is the mentoring we can offer in the present. And that's where I think, that's where I get a lot of my joy. But mentoring is this concept I want to dwell on just for a second because, you know, people have this sense that there's this kind of, you know, this single guru that you've got to find that will be your mentor. And um, I, I think that, that mentors come in so many shapes and sizes. It's like, you know, you have been a mentor to me you know, through our many conversations, through your books, through your friendship and counsel. You, I'm sure, have been that mentor to countless other people. I would say people I don't even know who are not in this profession when I've read things and they've spurred me to think in different ways. That's kind of a form of mentorship in its own way, very passive form, right up to people who I consider, you know, to be people who are Absolutely, I could call in a heartbeat and just ask for advice or who I've modeled my career on or, you know, there's so many. And if you had to say, who's your mentor? I wouldn't be able to give you that answer. I would say I've had many, many coaches. I would say, you know, I've had many, many people who've all had inputs. It's like a big tapestry all woven together. What we mustn't do is label the past generation as over the hill and has-beens. Because if we do that, we're going to lose a lot of the wisdom and we're going to start making a whole bunch of stupid-ass mistakes that could have been completely avoidable. And what the beauty is that the new blood, the future generation, they get technology. They were born with it, steeped with it. It's instinctive. It's not forced. It's just there. And they're going to have ideas. And crucially, they're going to have the energy to go ahead and play with those ideas. But they're going to need people who know how to make shit happen because ideas are worth exactly diddly squat. Ideas are worth pennies. Actual execution is worth dollars, lots of dollars. And I think it's the blend of both that's going to bring a future into sharper focus. But, you know, they always say youth is wasted on the young. And, and I think it's a very... Um, wise phrase like I wish to Christ that I'd known now uh, known back then what I know now <laughs> but it doesn't work that way that was the motivation for writing my book was like god I wish somebody had bloody well taught me this at the start of my career well, so I maybe a, I, I should do that well I have a talk <laughs> that's entitled don't make the same mistakes I did you know that really <laughs> would be a fun talk to do together at some point in time because oh we could do that that would be a fun one and, and that's actually what the white-haired old men generation, is if we learn from their mistakes and can currently learn from what they did, they are the foundation, they are the stepping stones. I mean, listen, they're the apostles or whatever biblical term you want to use, and I'm not real good on biblical terms, but we have to learn from the past or we're condemned to repeat it. That term I can use. 
but we also have to take advantage of the technology and the innovation, but not to the detriment of something you mentioned a little while ago, and that's the relationship. And part of technology is you can't hug a microchip. You have to be able to use technology to support the relationship. You have to use technology to build the trust. And you have to be careful because if the technology is too much focused on strictly the transaction, you then violate the trust in the relationship. So it's trying to create the customized and personalized technology that reflects on your vision, on your mission, on your values, on your team, on your standards, and support it so it supports that relationship. I think you were talking about corporate as well. I think one of the biggest changes, in my opinion, that corporatization has impacted is a move from a relationship and trust-based industry to a transactional industry. And I think that we need to blend both. I think we need to blend the relationships and the trust that lead to the transaction, which again goes back to people plus purpose equals profits, is the profits will come with relationships and trust. And I think some of this has been reflected in articles that we've seen recently, in trust violations that we've seen recently. And I think it's very, very, very important in the veterinary profession going forward in this next generation. And by the way, you probably remember, I have a daughter who is a fourth year veterinary student. So she is the next generation that she learns how to build those relationships, how to sit down on the floor and play with the puppies, how to throw that veneer smile into the room, how to engage in a conversation and how to take a 30, a three minute exam and make it feel like a CAT scan or an MRI so that the client understands how deeply invested we are in that patient at that time. And I'm going to go one direction even more obtuse. I think we have lost the art of the physical examination consultation to the detriment of technology and, and other things. I think that the consultation room, that 30 minutes that you're in there with the client, even if it's only 10 for you as the doctor and 20 with your staff, is all about the relationship building. You don't get to be the doctor unless you build that relationship in the consultation room. And that comes from that physical exam and communicating with the client throughout that physical exam and in that consultation. It does. And I, you know, I I fully agree with that. But I also have a little bit of a a fear with that. Not fear. Fear is not the right word. But I, I have a notion that Although this feels right to you and me, I also have a sense that this might not be the way that it goes. So I was walking into the station and I had two little things that just I was noodling on. One was the physician I use. I'm pretty sure all of my nerves are completely demyelinated by now and there's some physical disaster waiting to happen from from the last sort of five years. But... I was waiting for an appointment from the doctor and they, f- they said, you cannot book an appointment now by phoning them. So I actually walked in the front door and I was like, hey, can I, can I get an appointment? They went, nope, you have to book online. I'm like, okay, fine, that's your system, I'll do that. That's annoying, but that's the way it is. 
so I go on their system and it's some half-assed system and it takes me, it literally takes me 20 minutes to work through their form. And, you know, I'm not a tech Luddite. I, I understand how to type things in the internet and click send and stuff like that. And so I got the acknowledgement thing and then 10 days go by and being a typical guy and with lots on I completely forget and I'm telling my mom and she's encouraged me to go to the doctor in the first place because I'm also a typical guy and will not go to the doctor unless I'm actually nearly dead and so she reminds me because she's like no you really you really should go to the doctor I'm like okay mom I'll, I'll contact them so I phone them up and then they're like yeah you shouldn't be phoning us you have to use our system as an answer phone message and after you go through push button one and then two and then six and then and then eventually grudgingly it says please wait in the queue whilst your call will be answered. You're 15th in the queue. I'm like, seriously? So an, a half hour goes by and I get on the call and I explain what's going on. She goes, oh, did you get an acknowledgement? I said, well, it took me to a page that said, give us feedback on what you think this process was. And I actually completed that as well. I said, I think it's shitty. And if I was an old person who couldn't use a computer, this would have been a nightmare because it was such a detailed form full of lots of medical terminology and it was just ridiculous. And she went, oh, I'm really sorry about that. Listen, what we'll do is we'll get you an appointment. We'll send you a link to the appointment and all of that kind of thing. And sure enough, I got an appointment. And I said when I could make it and when I couldn't. So the appointment shows up when the time I couldn't make it. I'm like, mother of suffering. Okay, so then I, I have to like cancel the appointment. And it gets to the point where I'm like, I go to cancel. It says you can't cancel the appointment because it's within 24 hours of your appointment. I'm like, Jesus Christ. And so I've got to go back on the f- fucking phone system. And so I actually left a message to cancel the appointment because there was a quick option to do that. I'm like, oh, thank God for that. And I said, could you please call me back? This is ridiculous. So I get an email back and then eventually I say, look, th- listen, there's some times I could do and sometimes I can't. The time they could do was exactly 15 minutes before we're due to record this interview. And I'm like, what the shit like and it says the time is not precise so I'm like well I'm not going to cancel it and we'll see what happens well they called me half quarter of an hour before the actual appointment and the doctor was fine and so now he's booked me an appointment to come in and see them like in two weeks time what a palaver like how is that an improvement on picking up a phone and having that answered and booked in or getting an online appointment system I can understand them wanting to triage and they're under immense pressure in the National Health Service but that's a mess it it took it took three phone calls, one complaining client, one massive form, a couple of different emails. It's an absolute triumph of technology over actual usefulness. And it's like if you'd have designed the worst system, this is what it might have looked like. So I fed this back to them. But this is what people seem hell-bent on doing just now. It's senseless. The other thing that got me thinking, though, was I walked into Brighton train station to get a train up to London. Actually, up to Gatwick Airport. And I walked past this big, it's like a demountable, like a, a trailer. And it's like a, like a container, half of a container box, boom, on the ground. I was like, what is this? It's a pizza stand. But it's just a facade with one little hole and a card machine and a screen. And you choose your pizza and four minutes later, with no human interaction at all, a pizza cuts. It's a robot that serves you pizza. <laughs> I just thought, Wow. This is where we're going, though. Like, we are eliminating the need for humans in processes. And this is veterinary medicine. What are we struggling with? People. What makes it hard? People. 
What's the inevitable conclusion of that? That money will eliminate pain points. Pain points are people, shortages in doctors, shortages in nurses. Technology is ultimately what's going to eat all of our jobs. And so I start thinking, well, I agree with you. I think the physical examination and history taking should be the center point in technology to my eyes has not caught up with, you know, how can it possibly catch up with the palpation of a subtle organ change? You can't do that over telehealth. Most telehealth consults look like me calling my mom on FaceTime on a Sunday morning. I spend more time looking up her nose or looking at the coving on the ceiling than I actually see her. They're a hot mess. So I agree with that, but I also think that that is our brains from our era's thinking and that what would be acceptable to us or unacceptable to us is probably going to become acceptable to the next generation. And we cared for that interaction, but these generations may not because they're not used to it. They prefer interaction on the phone. They prefer it with technology. They don't want that face-to-face because it's frankly scary. And I think that's possibly one of the ways that we're headed. So, you know, telehealth, I think, has a big part to play, but cheapers, we're going to have to reimagine redraw the rules of engagement in some major way and handle some pretty big ethical questions along the ways to be able to enable that to happen. And I'm not totally convinced it's a good idea. Well, I agree with you that there's a place for telehealth and I think there's an even better place for reimagining. I have a talk that I talk about reimagining the veterinary business model going forward. And I think we will have automated pizza sales in our practices in some fashion. That's a metaphor for something. I can't quite figure out what it is, but you know, there may be a dock in the box where you uh, where you pass the uh, the dog through the window and you go drive around and pick it up on the other side, and it'll have its nails trimmed, it'll be bathed, and it'll have its um, dentistry and a colonoscopy performed, and you'll go home with it on the other side of the building within thirty minutes. So, I think I actually some of these... want to share something with you because you asked this question. Can you see this thing? I'm sharing. You yes. See what that says. Drop and go pet. Yeah. That is curbside. And that is 2012 <laughs> in, in my right. practice. Well, 1990, <laughs> 1989, yeah. when you were just still nursing, we had a drop-off service right. at our it's practice. curbside. Because we had double-income clients. You know, they needed to drop their pets off at 7 a.m. and pick them up at 6 or 7 p.m. So curbside is just a drop-off with a Tesla charging station. <laughs> so, you know, we have forced... It took you a second there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have forced clients to sit and wait for hours when they could go home, go shopping, run other errands. And I just don't know why we didn't think about drop-offs instead of curbside. It, it, curbside is just a... Drop-off is just a hassle-free curbside, for lack of a better yeah. way to put it. I honestly think people just thought, God, Anyhow, keep them out of the building. Well, we could have kept them out of the building with drop-offs as well, but we just didn't seem to completely figure that situation out. But, you know, it just goes to the fact that it, it goes back to where we were, which was the easy button. And curbside at that point in time was the easy button. And since most, many of the profession are followers and not leaders, Whomever was the first person who did curbside became the bright, shiny object, the brass ring that everybody followed. 
And there are others who followed the, oh, well, we're not doing curbside, we're just going to be open and take precautions approach. And there are others who did all sorts of hybrid type of things as well. I think we're getting close to wrapping up this podcast <laughs> at some point. Uh, but I think this discussion on leadership and mentorship and setting the direction for the future, but learning from the past, I think uh, focusing on relationships and trust and stop blaming. I think playing the blame game doesn't suit us well. If you're looking at relationships, don't blame. There's a Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles. Number one success principle. Take 100% responsibility for your actions. Event plus response equals outcome. You control the response. Don't blame the cop for your speeding ticket. All right, so stop blaming the world around you for you not getting what you want. You control the intrinsic factors within your practice. You can mollify, ameliorate, or some other SAT word, the extrinsic factors that impact your practice by systems, processes, checklists, and planning. But if you want to be a victim, Blame everybody else. If you want to be a victor, take control of everything. I like that, victor. Final words, Dr. Dave. No. Well, I mean, thank you for turning the tables on me. That was fun. And I'd say my final words would be, I feel like when we have conversations like this, it can be quite easy to get to feel... I don't want anyone to feel discouraged from hearing what we're saying. Like, it's not... We're shining a light and we're speaking some truths as we see them on things that they definitely need to change. But I hope also what comes across is that the tools are available for change. They're just not available if all you want is the easy button. And I think that is what we are both imploring people to do is to not push the easy button. It, there's no wires coming out underneath the easy button. It, it's just a button. Uh, you're going to have to pick up some different tools. And there's lots of systems and processes and people that can help you move your business forward and it is such a different experience to have a practice that you own versus a practice that owns you is night and day in terms of your enjoyment your mental health and the enjoyment and the mental health of your people as well so it is never never too late nor is it too early to start the learning that's required to be a great leader well, I want to thank you for joining me on uh, this episode of uh, Blunt Dissection. I'm Dr. Dave Nickel, and uh, my guest today has been Dr. Peter Weinstein, and he's been a, a great interviewer. It has been so cool to turn the tables on uh, Dr. Dave and put him in the hot seat. I hope you learned a little bit about, about Dr. Dave and about where his mindset is, and I hope that uh, you appreciated some of the concepts and ideas that we shared with you today. And, we look forward to continuing to have these conversations and help uh, set the direction for the future of the veterinary profession. So thank you, Dr. Dave.
Thank you so much for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed it, then please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It'll take you two or three seconds to do that. It means the world to me and the comments that you leave, I absolutely adore reading back. If you enjoyed the subjects and we covered a lot of them in today's show, or if you feel passionately about the subjects, feel free to get in touch. Best way to do that is on the socials at Dr. Dave Nicola Instagram. And don't forget to give both Peter Weinstein and myself a little follow if you haven't done that already. Until next time, from us all here at Vetex International to all of you guys out there in veterinary medicine, keep being awesome, be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out.